Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is called The Age of Costanza, Part 3, the food and sex episode. All right. I think the day the canary died in the coal mine was when in 1994, Dr. Jocelyn Elders, the Surgeon General, announced to the world that masturbation was a good thing, even necessary, telling one of the greatest lies in history. And every man in the listening world was nodding along with her because if science said the old morality was dead, men were more than ready to agree. Um, I was probably eating a Little Debbie Nutty Buddy when I heard it or drinking a 32-ounce Big Buddy from the local Mini Mart. Now, elders lost her job for that after a big kerfuffle in the media, um, but the word was out. Chastity was a sin, not a virtue. And the last old fuddy-duddy rule that Christianity had lifted up regarding lust was being pulled down and paved into a parking lot. This commandment came from the Tower of Washington, D.C., from the anointed Surgeon General, and they knocked down one of the last fences of morality. Uh, what Woodstock had not already opened the gate to long ago, we had finally taken down this last blocker. Uh, for anyone familiar with Chesterton's fence idea, um, you can see that this relates directly. Um, and if you are familiar with Chesterton's fence and how we foolishly have removed all the fences because of our assumption of knowledge, then you may also see how the story of Chesterton's wall relates as well. Um, Chesterton's fence is um, you don't take down a fence unless you know exactly why the fence was put up in the first place. And Chesterton's wall is that um, as another story. So there's a link there if you want to read about it. They're both very interesting ideas and um, they are very relevant to our current state in the world. But so to me, the fatal flaw of science is when it turns into a source of spiritual direction. And it's the same flaw uh, of every other ideology. Um, the same flaw of every other ideology is that it doesn't believe in God. So, I mean, of course, it cannot. Science, uh, pure science is a study of the natural world. And science is is beautiful and good at finding the truth when it sticks to experimentation and data. But once the crossover is made into morality, it becomes dangerous because to misunderstand that souls exist means missing half the person. Um, the ide ideology of scientism happens whenever you hear morality lessons starting with the words, studies show, so studies show is like the new um, handing things down from the mountaintop. Um, so the devil attacks the body and he places thoughts in our heads because that's all he can affect. Um, without our defenses of prayer and fasting, we are sitting ducks. And science doesn't believe in God because it can't. It's studying the natural world. And therefore, it doesn't understand the devil. So when it goes into spiritual ideas of morality, it gets into a weird spot. But the devil understands science just like he can quote scripture. And we all know the devil can quote scripture, so it follows that he can twist organic, organic chemistry findings and molecular biology as well to his purposes, because all you need to do is interpret the data to the outcome you like. When we all forget, uh, what we all forget is this. Um, the devil is smarter than us. He's smarter than all of us. Um, angels and demons are pure intellect, and for us to think we know better is exactly what he wants. In fact, there's a new movie out called Nefarious, um, which has a very accurate portrayal of demonology as Catholics understand it. Um, he, he plants thoughts in our heads in order to deceive, distract, divide, and drive us to despair and tempt. But we are the ones that have to agree to it since we have free will. And the best thought he can possibly plant in our heads is that 
the devil does not exist, and then neither does God, and neither does your eternal soul. So this is like the reverse of the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, instead of a seed being planted of, for faith and growing into a great shrub that houses many birds, the devil just brings us the bird droppings, the bird shit. There's no growth, just death. Now, <clears throat> the devil is going to devil, since that's his job. He's going to divide and distract and deceive and all that. God allows this to give us temptations and trials to make us choose. People don't like this idea because why would a good God allow this? Why would, why would that be? The only problem with a purely material world is that you have no explanation for evil. And so we pretend that wealth and education and sexual freedom will solve the problem. Um, evil some made-up construct. Um, but as I've just gone on at length here about the abundance of food and sex um, and, and having everything you want does not solve the problem of sin at all. It just pretends it's not there and it's still there. And eventually, no matter how much you eat, whether it's sugar or protein, and no matter, no matter how much sex you have, the big, empty, God-shaped hole in our hearts still needs to be filled and we always wonder, what, what could go in that God-shaped hole? I wonder what that is in that void. So free will is the manner in which we choose grace or sin. And when you have a Surgeon General come out like Moses on Capitol Hill to announce that sexual sin no longer exists, people get out the keg, the Hustler magazine, the condoms, the golden calf, it all comes out of storage. And once the gate is removed or the fence, the sheep wander, and wander we have. You know, Jonah's jaunt to Nineveh, could be done to any average Midwestern American town at this point. And, but unlike the king of Nineveh, Nineveh I don't think any mayors or, or um, you know, city councils will be tearing their clothes, wearing sackcloth, and sitting in ashes anytime soon. I would love to see that, though. That would really be amazing if someone actually did that. But, so food can't save us, and nor can sex. But like food... Sex can, sex can be used for good purposes or bad, and the modern idea of sex as freedom has destroyed millions of marriages and families. It's just everywhere, everywhere you look. So ask anyone um, who's had many, many partners if it's true that sex has brought fulfillment. Um, has lots of sex brought them peace? And the answer is an emphatic no. We all know these people, they're everywhere today, and the constant pursuit of the next partner makes for a life of lying and surface relationships that end when the first uh, difficulty arises. And, you know, sex by itself is basically as deep and meaningful as what the paint shaker at Home Depot experiences in its gyrations. Um, I don't know many people that would watch a video of the paint shaker at Home Depot, but that is essentially what pornography is. The same goes for one night stands and quickies with strangers. Um, in other words, sex is removed from its actual purpose of making children and uniting married people together. It's really wild that this declaration is so obvious, but it's considered wrong think or, or even a thought crime today. But the purpose of sex is obviously reproduction, and it is pleasurable in order that we reproduce. Um, it's such a radical thing to say. It's so, what a, what a time we live in. Try as you might to explain it away, the purpose of sex is reproduction. Pleasure is not the primary purpose, which we've flipped it. This is hard to accept today, but realize that you would not ever be reading this if pleasure was the only purpose. You wouldn't be here. So immense amounts of money go toward papering over this fact, but every day babies are born popping out and wailing to prove the purpose of the act. It's me, they cry. 
Um, I'm the reason you're you're horny. Surprise. Um, the intention is to unite a husband and a wife and to make a family. Um, it's funny that like penguins understand this, but people with smartphones do not. I don't know. We've gone backwards somehow. But in fact, anyone who continues this charade of trying uh, to trade sex for meaning um, like it was a stock or something, they find themselves more lost than drug addicts in the end. Um, the wreckages that follow a life of of random partners is as bad as that of alcohol or worse. And so often they go together. And surely we all know porn addicts and incurable strip joint patrons, um, which is really a sad thing to watch. But um, you watch their efforts to find another partner is kind of like Dexter, the TV show. He was the serial killer searching for his next victim. But the constant pursuit of sex makes for a pathetic chase scene not that different from scenes in The Walking Dead, where you can see zombies pursuing uh, Michonne or Maggie in that series. Um, it's all just all so shallow and kind of zombie-like that watching it makes you sad. It makes you sad for both the pursued and the zombie, the pursuer, when you know that the lies used in the wooing will all fall flat in the end. So even if the, even if the zombie catches Michonne or Maggie, um, he's just going to eat her brain anyway. So, yeah, it's not, not good. How many um, country songs cover the state? A lot of them. And loneliness, you know, loneliness, it's really something. There's such different kinds of sadness. Uh, I mean, Old Yeller is sad, but not nearly as sad as loneliness that leads to sin. So to compare two movies, Requiem for a Dream is a drug movie that follows this arc of desperation for euphoria through drugs. And there's a lot of um, sex stuff besides it. Um, and unlike that is Old Yeller, where you are sad about this wholesome doggy whose goodness felt nearly transcendent and you feel shattered and destroyed in the sadness of a life um, uh, for the dog versus a life in Requiem for a dream of drugs and sex that walk these characters into a living hell and ends with Jennifer Connelly reduced to a stage dog dancing for more drugs. It's um, this, yeah, uh, okay. So sex becomes a closeted pursuit for the addicted, really worse than many drugs. And it may excite the flesh for a bit, but sooner or later, like any fix, you need more. And the more you need, the more vicious the cycle gets until it becomes a circular hell, which is I'm certain why Dante made the rings of hell circles, because we all choose the vicious circle that we occupy. After a while, the pursuit gets weird and strange as what formerly satisfied no longer delivers the punch that the lust requires to get off again. The obsession is the secret addiction of millions of American men who should all proceed en masse to join an Exodus 90 group or a Strive 21 program to break these poisonous soul ties. Um, and it wouldn't hurt if everyone started saying deliverance prayers for themselves and their immediate family. Um, uh, quick tip, just don't start dabbling and delivering others. Don't say de deliverance prayers for other people. That's a bad idea. But you might say, oh, I don't believe in the devil. That's all childish nonsense. Well, that's because he's probably already got you. So if you if you don't if you're buying into everything the culture's saying, you don't believe in the devil. Um, he's probably already bought your soul uh, for, and you you can fight back. His first tactic, number one, is to convince you that he doesn't exist. And while you do his bidding, he doesn't bother you. He just keeps confirming it in your head. Yes, yes, that's correct. You're right. Yes, you can do whatever you want. Those are all fuddy-duddy rules of old Christianity. 
Um, it's only once you start to fight it that you will begin to know that he is real, the devil is real, and then you'll also know that so is God. So the idea of freedom by way of sex is the shiny apple we're told to eat with the promise that it will give us knowledge or make us like God. And the reality is that all we, all we find out <clears throat> is that we lose something that maybe can never be restored. And sex is like a new car on a dealership lot. You know, it's shined up and waxed. Um, it's interesting how shiny things always seem to fit so well with sin. But within weeks, a new car, if you buy it, is covered in salt and dirt from the highways. And then before long, it's like every other car on the street. And we're still the same body and soul riding around in it, often eating fast food while we listen to songs about sex. So, um, so many are desperate to prove to prove somehow that sex or power can fulfill them. But like a man who buys a new pickup to turn the heads of his friends and strangers, um, in a few years, he will become disillusioned with that machine and need a newer, younger truck. Or if he can't afford the newer vehicle, he'll start adding aftermarket bolt-on equipment until it starts looking cartoonish. You know what you know the vehicles I'm talking about. Or worse, from the start, that new car might even be a lemon, and it was never what he thought it would be. But now the debt is hanging around for years, and he hasn't just come to love the what he has. So, so this is why you know it's one thing in the in the ancient world, virginity was highly prized. I would say it actually still is today. Um, just not in the same way. But um, the ancient people knew what we have forgotten. And we say that um, today we say sex sells. And yes, sex sells, but it's way oversold. There's more to life. And just as Plato and Socrates and Confucius and Marcus Aurelius and Jesus all told us, the higher pursuit of, pursuit of virtue far exceeds the desires of the flesh. And even the Epicureans taught that much. I mean, even the Epicureans really were teaching that the virtue is the way to happiness uh, or Buddha. Like um, all of these shiny apples are always an illusion. So good things come from self-denial more than they do from indulgence. That's a radical thing to say today, only today. Um, but because of media and a bad notion of freedom, this idea of chastity has been given a bad name. Um, temperance has been given a bad name. And what may shock you is to learn that people pursuing chastity have greater friendships than people who see themselves as raging balls of desire in constant need of some kind of titillation. So virtuous friendship, in fact, requires it. And once lust is removed entirely, virtuous friendship can soar. Uh, but the question is, how can you remove lust? So let's go to the replay. Let's go look at the game that was played in Genesis once Joseph the son of Jacob went to Egypt and after he gets out of prison because he does some sweet dream interpretation for the, the king or the, the pharaoh or whatever, and then he gets a job um, and he works for Potiphar is the guy's name and the boss's wife, Potiphar's wife, wants him. She wants him. So in a predicament, uh, Potiphar's wife advances on Joseph, and what does he do to thwart the advances of his wife, of his boss's wife? He flees. He flees. He runs. Now, for most sin, you pray and fight. You need courage, as the spiritual combat demands us to do. But for lust, no, you flee. You turn away. Joseph illustrates the successful method of handling lust 
Um, in the Navarre Catholic Study Bible, there's a great comment about this story from St. Caesarius of Arles way long ago that is applicable today. He says, Joseph flees in order to escape. Learn, therefore, to flee if you want to win out against the attack made by lust. Do not be ashamed to flee if you want to attain, attain chastity. Among all the flights a Christian has to engage in, I'm sorry, among all the fights a Christian has to engage in, the most difficult are those of chastity. Here the struggle is a daily one, and victory is difficult. In this a Christian cannot have, cannot but have daily acts of martyrdom. So that was from a sermon of Caesarius of Arles. And um, there's also another note shared on the same story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife um, from St. Josea Maria Escriva, who is very much to the point. He says, don't show the cowardice of being brave. Take to your heels. When you're facing lust, you don't need courage. You don't go into the situation thinking you're going to win or something. You leave. You get out. So Joseph, of course, didn't have a smartphone or a laptop, but the same tactic can apply and work for lust today. So you turn off the device, you block the site or the person, and you flee from it. Um, Do you want to know a secret? Here's a secret. Um, People in monogamous relationships and single people practicing chastity have a secret. It's really simple. Uh, No, it's not that they are not tempted. Um, Surely they are as much as anyone or used to be. But the big secret is that they avert their eyes when lust arises. And this becomes a daily practice until it's second nature, until it's not even a challenge. Now, if it really hits you, you, you hit your knees and pray and always, always do this. It's the same for quitting drinking any vice. Prayer works. It works. Do it. Um, along with that, you can use St. Ignatius's 14 rules of discernment. They are like uh, kind of like a Swiss army knife of learning and putting the spiritual fight into practice. So uh, when chastity is pursued, you stop sizing up everyone. You stop saying, oh, look at her. And then it becomes, look to Christ. You always look to Christ. You remove your eyes from the thing that will cause you to sin. You don't need to gouge your eyeball out. Just look away. Seriously, um, observe your friends who are consumed with lust. Uh, Do a little people watching. Those people are not at peace. The fruit of chastity appears unshining to the untrained eye, but once you put down the hash pipe of modern culture with its obsessions um, and see people as made in the image and likeness of God who deserve love and respect, the world looks very different. And chastity, that old-fashioned idea that we've paved over, will free you in ways you never knew because what you think you need is only something you want. It's not a need. The Buddhists understand this. Um, Lainey Wilson The country singer understands this in her country song, Things a Man Oughta Know. One of those things is she says, if I can't have it, I can go without. If I can't have it, I can go without. Exactly, Lainey. Um, That's something George Costanza ought to know and me as well. And that's a thing we all ought to know. Learning to live this way in all things is true freedom because you leave your personal Egypt no longer a slave to the passions. And if you can sit in a room and not want something, you are beginning to understand what the pursuit of holiness is all about. The substitutes we use in place of God are never what we really want. They can be good things, but not if they are the highest thing, not if they are the highest desire for our life, um, where your heart is, that's where, where what your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Um, 
your treasure should be in heaven, not here. So the only thing you really need is God um, and your daily bread. That's why the Lord's Prayer is so good. So how do you surrender to win? How do you surrender it? Um, you don't need the things that you don't need. If I can't have it, I can go without. So as far as sex, well, if it happens, great. If not, great. Um, the book of Job knows how this works. You say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Bless the name of the Lord. And as some recovering alcoholics like to say, they say, it'll work out or it'll work out. Either way, you're going to be fine. So in other words, you'll be fine. Recall Job as often as possible as he summed up the proper humble mindset of a, mindset of a believer in the living God. Obviously, most of us learn this after eating much fruit. Um, much later, after we eat from the tree of knowledge, we say, oh, I get it now. Yes, I should have listened to my mother and father or that old person who told me this earlier when I just wanted to ignore them and be a glutton and um, lust and, and, you know, greedy and whatever. That's kind of how we do learn. There's a famous saying from William Blake, the road of wisdom, I'm sorry, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And I always say there's a better way to the palace of wisdom. Um, as someone who took the road of excess, um, don't take that road. Read, listen to the listen to other people. But the problem today is that the elders have gone off the rails. Uh, much of the baby boomer and the following generations grew up in a time, time of unparalleled affluence, really. Um, it's kind of like the express line to hell. Uh, money and comfort lead to these ideas that we're living in now. And if you're seeking religious truth from the Bible, follow the money. Uh, follow the power, follow the comfort. The Israelites get rusty real fast as soon as they are exposed to these oxygen-rich environments of wealth, power, and comfort. That's exactly when they fall away um, and they turn to um, other gods, to their vices, and that's when things go sideways for them. In fact, that's actually how things go sideways for the Canaanites with the violence in the book of Joshua that might, that might have to be another whole series someday. But anyway, um, the indoctrination from our schools and media assure us and even compel us to believe that sex is the key to happiness so that we act like the Bergens in the movie Trolls. If you've seen Trolls, the Bergens have to eat a troll to be happy. That's the only way they can be happy. They're, they're, they're led to believe is by eating a troll. And the whole movie is about the Bergen prince unlearning the cultural lies he's been indoctrinated into until he finds out, well, I, I don't need to eat a troll at all. Like, um, doesn't make any sense. And this is why we're at the point where, like I always say, the next St. Agonist will come and rock the world. Because once teenage girls realize that the culture is lying to them, then watch out. Uh, one Agnes can turn into a billion really, really fast now with social media. So... This, I believe, is God's plan with social media because this idea of mimetic desire or copycat, um, we all are copycats, uh, this mimetic desire kicks in really fast. So once kids realize that sex and identity politics is an empty cup, which they will, uh, every generation rejects the prior generation's ideas, um, they'll spend another decade observing the results of their parents' moral failures and pursuing this false freedom. and then it's very possible that the pursuit of holiness will become radically appealing to the next generation. So there's never um, a reason to give up hope because um, it's always God working something out. Um, so here's the thing that the Catholic church teaches that no one wants to admit. The church actually teaches that sex is good. 
In fact, it teaches that all of creation is good, but that we misuse it since the fall. The world and matter is not evil. In fact, that's what one of the greatest heresies are usually around, um, like Manichaeism or other forms of Gnosticism, is that the world and matter is evil and there's some secret knowledge of something else. So the world, the body, sex itself is not evil. Not at all. This is one of the most mangled ideas of ex-Catholics um, is they have this equation in their head of just that sex equals bad, according to Christians. And that has never been the position of the church ever. So what an eye-opener it would be if men and women would turn off YouTube or Hulu for a moment to read Theology of the Body. I wish it would get out there more. I think it's not talked about on purpose because it's um, it's there's a, so much truth in Theology of the Body. So I won't hold my breath that John Paul II's theology of the body stuff would become mainstream. Um, it's far easier to believe that we just that the church hates women and sex. But if you want to understand the church's actual sexual teaching and stop taking in the lies that people speak about the church, it, re, it does require actual reading the sources rather than just assuming the lies told you by the church's enemies. So if I want to learn about a product, the last thing I would do is take the word of the competitor's salesman. But that is exactly what we choose to do um, in sales and software world. There's an acronym called FUD. I think it's all over the business world, but it's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And what every company does is try to sow FUD about the competitor. It's a tactic of sales to grease the customer with these three things in order to squeeze a purchase order out of them. Nowhere is FUD used more than in portrayals of church teaching on marriage, sex, and the body. And you will be you will be slammed on social media if you even attempt to say, like, actually, the church thinks sex is not bad. Um, but I would challenge anyone to give an honest reading of theology of the body and then say, without lying, that the church hates sex or is anti-sex. The church opposes sin. It does not oppose sex. So when we use our bodies in right relation to God, we find the good and the beautiful, the this is core stuff, core concept of Christianity, and it's been discarded in favor of our desire for the apple or a sugary snack that satisfies the body, but not the soul. We've traded short-term arousal for drinking from the vine that gives life. The best advice I received was not to trust my emotions, not to trust myself first, um, but to, to follow God first and then listen to the movements of my heart. Um, the shelf life of an emotion is brief, often just a few days or a few hours. The movements of my heart, however, take me either away from or toward God, and that is where discernment must happen. So I mentioned St. Ignatius' Ignatius's rules of discernment. That's a great exercise for people to do. The longest trip we ever take is from our head to our heart. Uh, which seems to me another way of understanding that we must move away from the tree of knowledge and toward the tree of life. And luckily, we get another chance. Um, Jesus doesn't shoot his wounded. No, he heals them, he restores them, he resuscitates them. And we can eat from the tree of life if we unlock that door and let Jesus in, as he is the one who brings the daily bread. Um, he's the bread of life. He's the bringer of the living water. And that's the buffet we actually want. So forget the Vegas all-you-can-eat buffet, uh, throw out your beer bong. Um, you really want to binge and chug on the never-ending spring break in Cancun that you always wanted, which is Jesus. And there's no hangover, and there's no regret, 
and there's no awkward walk home in the morning when the when the light is dim. Um, in the end of the episode of Seinfeld, so to close, we'll go back to George in this age of Costanza. In the end of the episode of Seinfeld, where he's combining his food and sex pleasures, George gets greedy, and he says. He tells Jerry at the diner, I flew too close to the sun on the wings of pastrami, comparing himself to Icarus in the myth. Um, So what did George do that caused his pleasure wings to melt? Uh, He tried to add a third love into his sex life. You know, food and sex just wasn't quite enough anymore. So he brought a portable television under the sheets to have with his sandwich and his girlfriend at all simultaneously. He added technology and entertainment. Uh, In 1997, when the episode aired, the internet was hardly used yet by most Americans, but we were well on our way to flying too close to the sun with food, sex, and even though we had technology already, we were just getting our feet wet. TV and radio and those things, those were just like, um, you know, walkers compared to what we have now. We were on the verge of bringing the screen Um, into every aspect of our lives and into every waking and even sleeping moment. So George Costanza, as it turns out, was a prophet of the 21st century. And as anyone knows who has looked for happiness in those things that George was using, um, the reason George could never be happy was because he was treating people like things and things like people. His character is seeking joy, hope, and rest, but he's looking in all the wrong places. All right, that wraps up this series, um, the food and sex episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll be back with some more episodes soon. Thanks for listening.